Charles Spurgeon said, no study in scripture is more interesting or profitable to the Christian than the revelation which is given to us concerning the sacred trinity and the various parts which the divine persons take in the work of salvation. So it is to the trinity we turn today. Hello, Thinking Christians. Welcome to The Unapologetic Show, where we defend truth without compromise with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I'm your host, Tim Hall. The Trinity is perhaps one of the most mysterious, misunderstood, and often outright denied core doctrines of the Christian faith. So, Bobby, why is it important that Christians understand and can defend the doctrines of the Trinity? It's very rare that we hear sermons on the trinity i would venture to say that there's probably lots of people who have been a part of the church that have never even heard a sermon on the trinity and that could lead to some of the statistics that we've heard about where as much as a third of all christians don't even firm affirm that jesus is god and obviously that is incredibly problematic by understanding the Trinity more fully, uh, this can help us in our prayer relationship to God. It helps us to understand the full outworking of our salvific experience as the role the Father played in sending the Son and the Son in His role in dying on the cross and the Spirit's role in convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In fact, it's just a huge doctrine for us to ponder. Uh, you mentioned C.H. Spurgeon at the outset of the program. Here's another quote by him. He said, keep the existence of the Trinity prominent in your ministry. Remember, you cannot pray without the Trinity. If the full work of salvation requires a Trinity, so does that very breath by which we live. You cannot draw near to the Father except through the Son and by the Spirit. You know, Tim, I put together an acrostic utilizing the word Trinity to try to establish why it is important for us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And the T stands for tactfully understand the role of each member of the Godhead. Now, when we say Godhead, we're referring to uh, the Trinity. And by studying the Trinity, it helps us to understand the various roles of each member of the Godhead, that is, each person, be it the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. The R in the word Trinity stands for, it helps us to realize the distinct difference between Christianity and other world religions. And so, when we try to do apologetics, we're trying to give a defense of our Christian faith. And that takes discernment. We have to discern what it is that we believe as Christians. Like you can't give a defense of the Christian faith if you don't know what you are defending. And so to know what you're defending, we have to teach doctrine. And a core Christian doctrine is the belief that God is triune. That is to say, we believe in the Trinity. And therefore, when we understand who God is as Trinity, we can discern uh, what our belief is up against other beliefs. So when you take Islam that denies the Trinity, or you take Hinduism that is polytheistic, believing in hundreds of thousands of gods, when we understand the Trinity, it helps us to keep our discernment up. The 
I in the word Trinity stands for instruct other people in biblical truth. And that's crucial because when we understand the Trinity, we can begin to coach people in what the Bible has to say about God's revelation, how he's made himself known through the progress of time. Not only that, the N, it stands for, uh, we note how relationships are supposed to work. So when we have this understanding of the Trinity, we realize that God has eternally existed in triune community. Uh, one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, relationally connected throughout eternity. Now you think about us being created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Well, Part of being created in the image of God means that we were created for community. And when we study the relationship of our triune God, uh, it's helpful because we can draw on relational principles that can help strengthen our own relationships as it relates to our marriages or raising kids or friendships. Uh, think about the relationship that Jesus had with the Father and how intimate that relationship was. Yeah. I think that there's so much we can learn about intimacy. Not only that, it helps us uh, leading to the eye in the Trinity, the second eye. It helps us increase in biblical wisdom and more meaningful prayer by watching Jesus and his prayer relationship, uh, by paying attention to how the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings we do not understand. The T in Trinity stands for treat scripture with accuracy and integrity. That is the second T. So it helps us to be more thoughtful. And then finally, the Y stands for yearn to experience true biblical worship. And so these are some of the practical benefits that flow out of understanding who the Godhead is and why it's important to know who the Trinity is. Oh, and that's excellent. So I'm imagining the person saying, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. So then the question then becomes, well, where does this idea or where did this word Trinity actually come from? So how do we address that? It is true. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word denomination is not in the Bible. Uh, There's lots of words uh, that aren't in the Bible. Like you don't uh, look in the Bible and find the word omnipotence or omniscience, right? Uh, but God is omniscient and God is omnipotent. Uh, the word Trinity, what was happening is the early church uh, was recognizing, um, you know, that God is clearly one. Uh, and yet they started seeing as they studied the different persons of the Trinity, uh, they recognized that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had Uh, equal attributes as it relates to what the scripture attested to about each person of the Trinity. And so they started recognizing some plurality within this unity, this one God revealed in a plurality of persons. My seminary professor at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Scott Harrell, put it like this. He said, the church fathers insisted that it is precisely the scriptures that lead one to the doctrine of the Trinity. Put all together, the Bible serves as a remarkable painting, which seen only in dots and brushstrokes are hard to discern, but viewed in splendor presents a God one and three, both mysterious and yet clearly visible. Indeed, who would ever invent a concept that at first glance defies logic and took centuries to define? And while I hear that statement, uh, that's a beautiful statement, uh, I, I have heard C.S. Lewis and others say who had come up with a statement that defies logic. Well, that sounds good and exciting, but 
Hinduism has come up with statements that defy logic. Uh, so I would say that there are people who do come up with statements that defy logic. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's the logic of the matter on that quote. But it, it's a great sounding quote, right, Tim? <laughs> right. And it does, it does uh, pull back to the idea or point back to the idea that it's drawn from Scripture, that it's not necessarily invented wholesale. And we'll talk about, you know, kind of where those yes. uh, scriptural uh, evidences kind of found their culmination in the council. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like when we're looking at it, we're saying there is mystery to this, of course, um, but illogical, I don't think we could go that far, but yeah. Now, the actual term Trinity too, uh, why you don't see that in the scripture, it is believed that Tertullian uh, is the one who coined the term. Uh, he would have been an ancient early church father. And so uh, he's the one that kind of gets credit for coining the term. Well, now let's turn to kind of just a a simple working definition. I think this is one of the things that really gets misunderstood. One of the most common misunderstandings, and this is why we need to clarify this definition, is someone might say that the Trinity often means that, um, you know, someone like Jesus or the Father is like 100% man and 100% God as far as Jesus goes. So that's not necessarily the case. So what, how would you kind of give a working definition of the Trinity? It's a simple definition. Well, I would say that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, uh, but he has not always been fully human. So if somebody was to say that, uh, you're quite correct that that would be wrong. That's where the incarnation comes in, and that helps right. us. Uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, in his systematic theology, the big blue book, uh, he says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. And there is one God. And that's the point where some people might scratch their head, but I think Grudem has captured uh, the doctrine of the Trinity in a defined sense for us, that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. And so, uh, we're going to look at more biblical support for this in a moment, but some people, uh, they might point to the lack of the ancient Jews believing in the Trinity as evidence, but the ancient Jews had an idea of some plurality that we can even see through terms like Elohim with the plural ending. So interesting help even with that, that we could wonder if God's giving us something that he's tipping his hat off to something about Mm. the nature of who he is. Well, and, I, and we're going to go through, you know, Old Testament verses and New Testament verses here in just a few minutes. But one of the things that you've mentioned before is, is the Trinity is kind of this um, idea that happens through progressive res- revelation. So define for us what progressive revelation is in this context. Okay. Now, and I'd say the Trinity, as you would know, Tim, is eternally existed. So the Trinity is not happening through progressive revelation. Right. We are becoming aware of who the eternal triune God is through progressive revelation. Mm. And progressive revelation is how God has made himself known, how God has revealed himself to us through the progress of time. So it's not like when we think about God making himself known to us as humans, we just got one daily dump of theology and it was like, boom, all of a sudden our theology is crystallized. (laughs) Uh, This is an ongoing engagement with God. And his nature is elucidated to us over time. And so we see uh, that it's primarily the Father in 
uh, full force operation in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, we see uh, the Son uh, in the Gospels, and then after the Gospels, from the book of Acts forward, we see the life of the Spirit. But if people aren't careful, they'll start falling into heresies, uh, one in particular known as modalism. Mm. And we have to avoid that heresy, and we'll get into that heresy uh, next week in particular as we delve into this more. But we have to be cautious that uh, just be because God is revealing himself through the progress of time doesn't mean that God's modes are changing. It means that he's so great that he's manifesting himself more fully to us as we can handle his revelation through the progress of time. Well, I think that's a really important distinction. Uh, a question came up when you and I were talking about this with an, another friend of ours that says, okay, so you have this idea of progressive revelation, but how does progressive revelation and progressive Christianity uh, differ? So is progressive Christianity relying on that same idea of progressive revelation to come to some of their conclusions and, and how would you differ? So well, it's a slight, slight yeah. divergence, but I think it's an important one. Well, the difference would be that we're good with progressive uh, revelation as uh, evangelicals, uh, but we recognize that the progress of our understanding of revelation ends with biblical revelation, where the progressive church continues to see progressive revelation, meaning that they can have further revelation on the revelation already given, and they progress the revelation but what that essentially means is their revelation leads to new interpretations that contradict the old interpretations of the original revelation given through the progress of time that with more progress in time, they reinterpret and say that they've been extra enlightened. And that is the problem uh, where I would differ. I think that, yes, we believe in progressive revelation as it relates to biblical revelation. Mm. And our job is to know what was it uh, originally communicating to the original audience, not what would God say to us today in the sense of changing the theology. Yes, what would God say to how the original theology applies to us today, but not how do we change the original theology for today. Cool. Uh, I, I want to take a second, and before we turn to Nicaea and talk about the Council of Nicaea, to just remind our listeners that this uh, show is also available as an audio-only podcast. So hello, podcast listeners. Uh, thank you so much for checking this out. We also wanted to let our listeners know that this is a listener-supported show, and one of the ways that you can support this show is by liking this video on YouTube, subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can pick up uh, some merchandise that is below any one of the videos on our YouTube channel, or you can support the show financially through making a donation at our website at oneminuteapologist.com. That is how this ministry continues to happen, how these shows are continuing to be brought to you and your listening ears. So, uh, Bobby, let's go ahead and take a little bit of a turn here. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity was solidified at the Council of Nicaea, and, and it was solidified in a document or a creed called the Nicene Creed. So, what led to this council and the formation of the Nicene Creed? There was some heresy that was being taught in the early church, in particular by an individual by the name of Arius. And Arius believed that uh, Jesus was God's first created being. That is to say that Jesus uh, did not exist as the second person of the Godhead. 
and he had a point of origin, a beginning, and that was contested. And so what took place is you had a council that was brought together by Constantine uh, in Nicaea in 325 where uh, this was put together, this creed that has become very important to the church where we hammered out a clear articulation, or I say we as if I was there, where they hammered out a clear articulation of uh, Jesus and his relationship to the Father. And it went through various iterations where later on, you know, by 381 or so, you've got the Holy Spirit that is included in kind of your more revised Nicene Creed. Uh, but the, the original intent was to show that, that Jesus was one in essence with the Father. And this is how these different apologists uh, would emerge because there was false doctrine that was being taught and they would end up contesting the false doctrine through coming together. And so it's very interesting to see what took place there. Well, and I, I think that's exactly right. When we talk about Nicaea, we, we need to make sure that people know that the Trinity wasn't invented there, but it was actually found in Scripture, as we've referenced several times. So, let's turn to some of the Old Testament passages that support the doctrine of the Trinity. Where would you head first? Yeah, I like what you said, Tim. I mean, because w- what you're saying um, is exactly right. Uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity... It, it, it was recognized. It, it wasn't like, oh, let's come up with a way to just make God. It was recognizing how God has already revealed himself. And so what are some of the Old Testament passages um, that would support the doctrine of the Trinity? I would say, um, you know, you're not going to go to the Old Testament and be turn to like the book of you know, Zephaniah and teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, You're going to see plurality. um, And and some of it's going to be like the language of Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. And some of that is going to have a different um, insight for people. Like some are going to say, oh, this is referring to angels. Like God saying to the angels, let us make man in our own image. Uh, or some are going to say it's referring to his divine counsel. Um, others are going to say this is Trinitarian. Obviously, uh, the ancient Jews aren't going to take, let us make man in our own images, a Trinitarian. Uh, I think that it's fair. We can, we don't need Genesis one twenty six alone. We could say, we grant that uh, it, it's angels, if you wanted to say, or God's divine counsel. Um But there's other verses where we just see this, like in Genesis 11, come let us go down and confuse their language. Uh, um, In Isaiah 6, right? Um, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Um, Some would say that perhaps there is, uh, you know, a recognition of our triune God. Maybe that's a stretch. Maybe it's just an emphasis of recognizing how holy God is. But then in verse 8, who will go for us. So there are ways that people do, Tim, get around uh, some of the us language, but I think that we see um, support that there is a plurality of personages within the Godhead. I do think the strong piece, though, for me is Zechariah 12, verse 10. 
uh, where it says, and I, speaking of God the Father, will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So there we see the spirit. Then they will look on me, referring to the Messiah, whom they pierced. And so you see the three persons, the Father, uh, the Spirit, and the Son. And so I think that that's what we can recognize in the Old Testament. No, that's great. So there are, again, there's several verses, as we talked about the idea of progressive revelation in the New Testament that really help elucidate the idea of the the, the two natures of Jesus, but just specifically when it talks about um, the Godhead, what passages would you turn to in the New Testament that, to help support the idea of the Trinity? Yeah, like, I mean, you think about baptizing uh, in Matthew 28, go baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, in the name, in the one name, in, in, in the one essence, the one, the one substance in God, but in the one name of God, right? Uh, so go baptize them in, in the name, right? Of, and then of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what we see is there's, there's the one God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 4, we read this, there is one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. So there we see the Spirit, we see Jesus, and we see the Father. Uh, in the benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, it says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, right? Speaking of the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So there you can see that plurality again, Tim. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's uh, there's one uh, one objection that comes up a lot and that's, you know, referencing the Shema um, to you know, hero Israel, our Lord God is one. And we talked about this just a little bit in the definition, but how would you respond to somebody that comes to you and just says, look, it's right there in Deuteronomy. The Lord is one. You, you can't add anything else to that. It just doesn't matter. How would we just address you know, kind of this, you know, main objection here? I think we could validate and would validate and should validate that. Yes, God is one. There's one God. Uh, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, right? So there, I and the Father are one what? We're one God, but I and the Father are two separate persons. Uh, when it comes to baptism, baptizing the one name, right? Uh, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, you have one God revealed in three persons. So uh, we can validate that. I think we could equally turn uh, that question around and say, well, what are you going to do with these verses where you see that the Spirit is equated to God or where Jesus is equating himself with the Father? Or we see some plurality of personages which have, uh, you know, recognition of deity. Uh, what are you going to do there? So uh, what I think that we're doing as Trinitarian Christians is we're trying to be faithful to all the biblical data, recognizing that, yes, God indeed is one, but there is three personages. And so the danger is, is if you go over and say God's simply one, but there's no plurality of Godhead, then you'll end up with a strict monotheism like Islam or Judaism. Or if you deny that God is one, then you might end up in polytheism or modalism and these other heresies. And so that's why when put, putting all the pieces together, I think we end up with a triune God, one God in three persons. Yeah, I mean, it, people have said it before, and I've heard you mention this example. Sometimes people will be like, oh, you have one plus one plus one equals three. Duh, you know, Christians can't even do math, but 
really, as you've pointed out, that should be one times one times one times one equals one. And, you know, that's another good, you know, just highlight thing that we can bring up when we're talking about this. So any other closing thoughts here? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, one would be uh, polytheism as an illustration, and the other you could have a uh, you know a monotheism in one times one times one, but it could be a personal monotheism where you have a plurality of persons within the Godhead, and that's all that illustration seeks to show is that it's not a contradiction uh, to have one times one times one it equals one three and one. Excellent. Excellent. Well, next week on the show, uh, again, we did not even begin to plumb the massive depths of the Trinity, but so we're going to turn this into a few week series. Next week, we're going to hope to address some different heretical teachings that come up around the Godhead. And then the following week, we're going to do our best to really look at the incarnation, uh, you know, the relationship between uh, Jesus and his deity and how that affects other religions and other false teachings as well. So we hope you join us for that on our next week's episode of the Unapologetic show where we defend truth without compromise. You've been listening to Unapologetic with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I am your host, Tim Hall. Be sure to listen to Bobby on Pastor's Perspective Monday through Thursday, as well as like, share, and subscribe to the One Minute Apologist YouTube channel, where we have over 1,000 videos. We would also like to remind you that this is a listener-supported program. We would greatly appreciate your support in any amount so we could continue to provide this ministry. If you would like to be a part of our team in any capacity, please visit our website at oneminuteapologist.com. And while you're there, check out all of Bobby's books, courses, and even invite him to speak at your church or event. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, where we defend truth without compromise. Sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa.